About 10.15 this morning, I was hiding in the back hallway closet, <laughs> praying that God would uh, help me through this day. <clears throat> well, good morning, brothers and sisters. As usual, I am grateful to our choir and Fred and all the musicians for leading us in our worship service and preparing our hearts for today's teaching. It's tough to pick a favorite part of our service, but I must confess that the congregational singing just blows me away each week. You, the church, sing with enthusiasm, energy, heartfelt love for the Savior and each other. I'm so thankful that God has allowed Lynette and me to be a part of this body during this season in our life. I've benefited greatly from our study in 1 Thessalonians, as I'm sure many of you can say the same thing. I greatly appreciate all the teaching that has been brought to us by Drew and Ted and Joel and others. God has blessed us with faithful teachers that love the Word of God and strive to rightly divide it to us. I'll try not to lower the team's batting average today. <laughs> Maybe we can be like it was when we were in school and the teacher drops our lowest grade. <laughs> Jacob and Rachel Rinko and their boys, Orion and Xander, are in our pastoral care group. And I texted Rachel happy birthday earlier this week and she sent one back letting me know that they had prayed for me specifically concerning this morning. I texted back to her, early lunch Sunday. <laughs> and it was just about going to be that way since my computer went kaput yesterday. I have to dictate things to my computer because my hands don't work like they used to. My fine motor skills have been really affected by the Parkinson's. And if Ben Federoff hadn't come to the rescue yesterday with a borrowed computer, Fred, you might have been directing this inspiration this morning because I would have been gone. <laughs> but alas, the Lord worked everything out, and here we are. So let's begin with a brief review of what we've learned so far. After being jailed and beaten in Philippi, Paul and his missionary team traveled to Thessalonica, where they spent somewhere between three weeks and a month teaching in the local synagogue there. Uh, Luke records for us in Acts 17 that Paul reasoned with them from the scriptures explaining and proving that it was necessary for Christ to suffer and to die and to rise from the dead and saying that this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. It was the clear and simple, straightforward gospel message that pierced the hearts of the people in Thessalonica. Luke goes on to say in Acts that some of the Jews were persuaded and believed, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women as well. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, Paul writes to them and says, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. This church in Thessalonica was born in affliction, 
Luke continues in Acts 17 that the unbelieving Jews became jealous and joined forces with wicked men of the rabble, forming a mob to hunt them down. It's interesting how hatred for Jesus and his gospel and his people can bring together some unbelievable alliances. As a result, Paul and his companions had to leave the city in a rush, leaving behind these new believers to face an ever-growing and mounting opposition. And although Paul's time with these dear believers was short, throughout his letter, his tender affection towards them is obvious. In chapter 2, verse 7, Paul says that they were gentle among them, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. He expresses a longing to see them again face to face. He spoke of their sufferings and afflictions because of their faith in Christ. He sent Timothy to check up on them, to be sure that they were thriving in spite of their situation. And they were. Their faith in the midst of great difficulty encouraged Paul's heart. As he begins his final remarks in chapter 4, he urges them to live a life that's pleasing to God and then helps, them, helps to ease their concerns for their deceased loved ones in Christ, telling them to encourage one another with the truth that Jesus was indeed coming again. Comforting words for them and comforting words for us in a world that's broken and growingly antagonistic to those who follow Christ. Now we come to his final remarks. In chapter 5, verses 12 through 22, is a conglomeration of short, poignant statements of how Paul says that they, as believers, should live out their faith. Without question, our faith should affect how we live. It matters how we live. What we do matters. God does have expectations how we should approach life and the world around us. The instructions or commands are short and to the point with little or no expansion on the statements. We can assume that while Paul was with them, that he had gone into much more depth about these things more thoroughly while he was there. And now he is reminding them, like a parent would remind a child before they were going to stay over with a friend. Now, remember to be polite. Remember to say thank you and you're welcome. Be respectful. Don't cause any trouble while you're there. Just reminding them of how you expect them to live out what you've been teaching them at home. Paul had taught them these truths, and he's reminding them of what they have learned. Joel and Drew have already brought us through the first part of this list, and we will finish it out today. So follow me as I read 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 22. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. The message title is simply Practical Reminders 
for believers. And we're going to look today at the believer's power, the believer's disposition, and the believer's discernment. Let's look, first of all, at the believer's power. I think in our particular circles of Christianity, the Holy Spirit has been somewhat demoted or marginalized and maybe even ignored to some extent. Without question, there have been legitimate abuses of the Holy Spirit throughout Christian history and in modern history as well, particularly in the lifetime of people my age and older. The charismatic movement created a lot of uncomfortableness and misdirection and wrong instruction about the Spirit's power and his manifestations. And I am concerned, though, that those abuses caused many of us to move too far in the opposite direction. Some of you say, oh no, Tim's going to talk about tongues, dreams, and visions. We don't have adequate time this morning, and I certainly don't have the wherewithal to dive into those kinds of controversies, nor am I as dumb as I look. (laughs) But I am compelled in this first point to take some time to mention the negative reaction to the abuses of those things we have witnessed over the years. I remember as a new believer in fundamental circles of being almost afraid of the Spirit's work. That was not good. We're wrong to avoid him and to push him aside. The Holy Spirit is not an impersonal spiritual force. He's God. The Holy Spirit is co-equal with God the Father and God the Son and should not be set aside nor should his role in the Godhead be diminished. As believers, we are completely dependent on his work in our lives. It is the Spirit of God that regenerates our hearts and makes it possible for us to respond to God's call of salvation. It is the Holy Spirit that convicts us and convinces us that we are sinners in need of Christ. It is the Spirit of God who comes to dwell within us when we come to Christ. The Scriptures teach us that he illuminates us, comes alongside to help us, guides us, convicts us, comforts us, and leads us into all truth. Romans tells us that when we do not know how or what to pray, he steps in and intercedes for us. And it is by his power, only by his power, that we can live out in our daily lives the fruit of our salvation. The Christian life wouldn't exist without the Holy Spirit sanctifying power and work in our lives. So we're jumping right into the middle of the text because this idea of quenching not the Spirit sort of works both ways in the direction of our text because it is central to how the other aspects work. When Paul says, do not quench, That word was used in the sense of extinguishing both lights and fires. Think about your candle snuffer. You ladies who have, does anyone even still know what a candle snuffer is? Okay, tiki lights. (laughs) 
in your yard, okay? You know, the little cap that you put on it and snuff out, the, snuff out the light. Most commentators translate this, do not put out the Spirit's fire or do not extinguish his light in your life. I like what the Amplified Version says. It says, do not be unresponsive to the working and guidance of the Spirit. And then NLT puts it this way. It says, do not stifle the Holy Spirit. How do we put out the Spirit's fire in our life? I think that word in the Amplified Version says it well. By being unresponsive to the working and guidance of the Spirit in our lives. Early on in my Christian experience, I was given a definition of what it means to walk in the Spirit. I said, what, 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 what's this walking in the Spirit mean? And it, this definition goes something like this, giving instant obedience to the promptings of God's Spirit in my heart. That's what it means to walk in the Spirit. Listening and responding as he applies the Word of God to our lives. We quench the Holy Spirit when we delay obedience to him. Delayed obedience is disobedience. We quench the Spirit when we say things like, oh, that doesn't apply to me. Paul commands us in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 19, to not be drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. And I like to define being filled with the Spirit this way. Instead of getting a DUI for driving under the while intoxicated, I call it L-U-I, living under the influence of God's Spirit. That is how the Christian life has got to be led. We, because the Spirit of God takes the Word of God, convicts us and empowers us to live it out in our daily lives. In Galatians 5.16, Paul tells us to walk in the Spirit, or another way of saying it, keep in step with the Spirit, and you will not fulfill the desires of the flesh. And again in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30, he says, Do not grieve the Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. When you're sitting in a service under the preaching of God's word and God's spirit prompts your heart of something that is needing to be addressed, you literally make a choice at that moment. Are you going to listen and respond or are you going to ignore and move on? And when you do that, you grieve the Holy Spirit and you quench his power in your life. John Stott writes this. He says, far from extinguishing the Holy Spirit, we must let him both shine and burn within us. We must let him speak to us with a living voice through the ancient scriptures and then to move us to respond to God appropriately with all of our being. So let me ask you a few questions. What lifestyle habits or choices are undermining the Spirit's influence in your life and causing you to be unresponsive to Him? What other voices and philosophies are you listening to rather than the Spirit's voice through His Word?
Are there areas of your life where God's Spirit has specifically convicted you and you have not responded to His work in your heart? Are you positioning yourself daily to walk in step with the Spirit rather than living haphazardly? God invites us to participate in this by yielding to the Spirit, by walking daily under His influence. Before I was saved, I couldn't do that. But now God invites me to participate by walking in step with the Spirit of God in my life. Quench not the Spirit. So what does it look like when we do not quench the Spirit? When we live under His influence? That question leads us to our last two observations from this passage. In verses 16 through 18, we see the believer's disposition. Paul writes, Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. When we first read these verses, they sound like a disconnected string of admonitions. But these imperatives convey a human response to God, recognizing that our connection to God is the source of our joy and of our gratitude. The exhortations to rejoice, pray, and give thanks are common among Paul's letters. However, when we consider the circumstances in which these believers find themselves, they take on a new perspective. As I said earlier, Paul's time with these believers ended abruptly with a near riot forcing them out of Thessalonica. And the persecution and pressure continued after Paul and his team left. That's pretty. <laughs> Drew had a bird and I have dancing music. <laughs> As I said, Paul's time with these believers ended abruptly with a near riot. I didn't mean to embarrass you. I'm sorry, whoever that was. I, I, wasn't looking, I don't really know. I don't want to know who it was. <laughs> I left my phone in the car because I knew it was going to go off in my pocket probably. <laughs> Paul's time with these believers ended abruptly with a near riot, forcing them out of Thessalonica, and the persecution and pressure continued after Paul and his team left. The scriptures tell us they, they followed them on to the next town, and they gave trouble to them there, and they gave trouble to the Thessalonican believers as well. These believers had been also grieving over, over the death of fellow believers. But Paul reminds them of the power of the gospel, Jesus Christ had conquered death, and just as God raised Jesus from the dead, those in Christ will be raised from the dead as well. So when the Spirit of God is ignited in our lives, when we are not quenching Him, when we live, we can live counter-culturally with joy in the face of difficult circumstances and opposition. These folks were being commanded to be joyful in some very difficult circumstances. But the Spirit of God working in our hearts makes it possible for us to live counterculturally 
even in the midst of difficult circumstances. We can live with consistent, humble prayer because the Spirit indwells us. And therefore, God is always with us and approachable. And we are thankful by marking out our blessings rather than our burdens. I think all of us recognize that as believers we should rejoice. We have a lot to be grateful for and thankful for. We can rejoice. And we know we should pray and we know we should be thankful. But what catches our attention in this passage are those little words, always, without ceasing, in all things. I mean, all of us rejoice sometimes. All of us pray sometimes. All of us give thanks sometimes. But all the time, always, in all things. That's hard to do. When we take these inclusive statements seriously, it seems almost impossible to live out these commands. Paul says rejoice always. Let's look at that first. It's natural for us to rejoice when circumstances are favorable. But the Thessalonian believers were not enjoying favorable circumstances. Yet Paul tells them rejoice always. That's because for us as the believer... Our rejoicing is not dependent on our surrounding circumstances. It is rooted in the gospel truth that we are in Christ. Our rejoicing is rooted in gospel truth, not in our surrounding circumstances. That's why in another one of his letters, Paul writes to the Philippian believers, telling them rejoice when he says that joy in God is necessary to show God's worthiness and to sustain sacrifices of love. Then he takes us to Jesus' own experience and says, Jesus endured the cross for the joy that was set before him. He tasted it. It sustained him through the deepest suffering. His father was glorified. His people were saved. That is what joy in God does. We're so accustomed to things going our way that we're awesome. Nor the fruit beyond the vines. The produce of the olive fail and the field yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Christian brother and sister, we always have something to rejoice in. The fact that God has redeemed us, that Jesus Christ has accomplished for us what we never could accomplish for ourselves. And we must root our joy in those kind of gospel truths, not in the circumstances that are around us. If your joy is based on external circumstances, then your joy is not on good footing and your house will come down. Our joy must be rooted in what God has accomplished for us. Then he tells us to pray without ceasing. This obviously can't mean that we are to be on our knees at all times with our eyes closed or raised toward the heavens, bringing our petitions to God. That's simply not possible. We 
We have work to do. We have family responsibilities and other obligations. Although we should set time aside and specifically for prayer, there's more here than just a specific time set aside for prayer. It's speaking to us about having a relationship of communication with God. And since we have the Holy Spirit, here's the connection again of not quenching the Spirit. Since we have the Holy Spirit indwelling us, then God is always with us and communication with God is always possible. He's a friend that sticks closer than a brother. He's with me all the time. I'm sure there are people who wonder what is going on in my truck as I'm driving down the road. I often use that time traveling between job sites to pray for folks that I need to pray for, pray for myself as well, my responsibilities, communicate with God. And I do so out loud. I just talk out loud because it helps me keep focused on what I'm doing, except my driving, maybe. <laughs> maybe that's why they're looking at me instead. <laughs> Luke, in Luke 18, Jesus told his disciples that we ought always to pray and not lose heart. So think of praying always as always being ready to pray. Having Christ with you through the person of the Holy Spirit at all times. And just communicate with him like you would with any other dear friend who means so much to you. In that statement in Luke, I think Jesus gives us another insight into what it means to pray without ceasing. This application, persevering in prayer and not giving up. We are to continue to pray for loved ones who are without Christ. Some of you have prayed years for spouses or children or parents. Pray always. Pray without ceasing. Don't give up. We continue to pray for the grace that we need to live a life pleasing to God. We continue to pray for the needs of our brothers and sisters in Christ. We don't give up on praying. Then he tells us, in everything, give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. It's a subtle observation, but Paul doesn't say, in for everything, give thanks. He says, in everything, give thanks. There are so many tragic circumstances that are represented by our body here at Hampton Park. There is something cynical, maybe even unhealthy, about going around telling people they need to be thankful for cancer or for the tragic death of a child or a life-altering accident. It's been over 37 years now since my wife, Lynette, had a liver transplant that forever altered our lives. We had only been married nine months when that overwhelming flood of circumstance hit us right in the face. It changed everything. It pulled the carpet out from under us. I was shaken to the core 
And to this day, I would be hard-pressed to say the words, thank you for that circumstance. But I can say wholeheartedly, without reservation, Thank you, God, for what you did in us. This kind of gratitude can only come from our lips because we've learned to trust that God is sovereign and that he is good and that whatever he is allowing in our lives at this time, he is able to bring from that difficulty Glory for himself and good for us. And then he adds this little caveat, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus. Paul is not saying that this is the entirety of God's will for us. There's lots of things that are God's will. He made a similar statement earlier in chapter 4. When he said, this is the will of God, even your sanctification. Okay. We know that God's will is more than just these three or four things. But I love it that through Paul, God gives us insight into these specific things that are part of his will for all of us as believers. This statement undoubtedly ties into all three of the exhortations Binding them together. Joyfulness, prayerfulness, thankfulness are markers of the unquenched Spirit of God working in us. If all you see in the world is the dark side of every situation, if you are not in regular, intimate fellowship and communication with God, if gratitude escapes you, then you are not following God's expressed will for your life. Because the work of Christ on our behalf, and because of the indwelling spirit working in us, the normal trajectory of a believer's life is that we have this disposition toward joyfulness and prayerfulness and thankfulness. This spirit-empowered life expression testifies to the work that God is doing within us. So, let me ask you some questions. In what ways are you expressing your joy in God? Are you encouraging others to focus their attention on God's work for us in Christ rather than seeking joy through desirable external circumstances? Are you cultivating your relationship with God by communicating with God throughout your day and not giving up on prayer? Have you thanked God recently for what he has been teaching you in the midst of your trial? Have you expressed gratitude to others from whom you have received encouragement by watching them trust God during hard circumstances. And lastly, we want to briefly look at the believer's discernment. He says, Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. 
Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Remember now, verse 19 precedes this section. Quench not the spirit. And Paul instructs the believers at Thessalonica to be spiritually discerning when it comes to the teaching of God's word. He says, do not despise prophecies, but test everything. The situation in the early church was quite different than it is for us. We have the completed New Testament. They had the Old Testament scriptures as well as the apostles' writings as they became available by way of letter or the gospel accounts as they became available. Often there would be people who would come into their assembly or someone among them who would stand up or make an announcement that they had a word from the Lord. Some prophecy, some teaching, and apparently some of the church of Thessalonica didn't like this very much and came across as despising this idea of someone giving a word from the Lord. Paul says rather than being skeptical and looking down on it and dismissing it without thought, Paul says, test it. The word test here means to weigh carefully, to evaluate something. Determine if indeed it's in line with the known scriptures and apostolic teachings. Remember the connection to quench not the spirit. The spirit is the one who illuminates our hearts and gives us spiritual understanding. He guides us into all truth, and he will never lead us contrary to his revealed word. For us, we, as New we, we now have the New Testament as well as the Old Testament scriptures. We believe them to be the inspired word of God. For us, prophesying has more to do with teaching and preaching, especially what takes place here from the pulpit and in our Sunday school classes in our life group discussions, or in prayer meetings and Bible studies, not to mention the endless number of podcasts and YouTube sermons that we have available to us. We, are, we, we can really hyper-expose ourselves to all kinds of biblical teaching. But we have to be careful while we're doing that. We have to evaluate those things that we're listening to and hearing in light of the revealed Word of God. Because there are a lot of folks out there who are trying to lead people down a wrong path. In verse 3, he says, The one who prophesies or teaches in their own language speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and their consolation. Good preaching builds people up in their faith. doesn't tear down the faith. It encourages them, brings consolation, uses the word of God in a way that it convicts and brings them to a closer relationship. So how do we, how do we test something? Um, John Stott had five very interesting and good tests when it comes to um, listening, what you're listening to as far as the teaching from God's Word. Um, could you, Karina, could you pull up that slide? There we go. He said, first of all, we need to search the Scriptures. In Acts 17, the Berean believers would search the scriptures to be sure that what was being said was in alignment with the revealed word of God. What is the view of Jesus Christ by the person who is teaching you? What kind of view of Jesus Christ? John writes in 1 John, 
that if someone comes to you and say that Jesus Christ has not come in the flesh, that he is not the Christ, he is the spirit of Antichrist. And we need to know what people think about Jesus before we submit ourselves to their teaching. Then he talks about what Paul said to the Galatian believers. Is it another gospel? Is it something other than the gospel of grace they're teaching? Paul told the, the, the believers in Galatia, even if I come back to you again with another gospel, throw me out. He said, don't listen to another gospel. And the character, and that should say character of the one, of the person teaching, the, the teacher himself. Matthew chapter 7 is where Jesus warns his disciples that there would be wolves in sheep clothing who would come to destroy God's people. And many of God's people are being destroyed and led astray by inerrant teachers. And then, of course, what we just talked about in 1 Corinthians 14, does the teaching edify, build up the church? Does it encourage people in their faith? Does it encourage them in their relationship with Christ? Does it bring consolation and conviction in the life? We are unbelievably blessed with lots of good teaching here at Hampton Park. I don't think we despise it in the sense of not paying attention to it or, or, or not liking it. But our blessing of good teaching can also foster a couple of different concerns. Sometimes we might become lazy where we're not, when we're not really listening to what is being said. We're not engaged in the process, asking God to give us understanding. I think it's very possible in a church like ours, where the teaching of God's word is preeminent, we can take it for granted. All you have to do is go out of town on vacation and go to another church. And a lot of times you realize, we got it good. God has blessed us here with a teaching pastor that is engaged in bringing the word of God to us in a way that we can understand and we can apply and live it out. We sometimes take it for granted. We become bored or unnecessarily critical and disinterested and disengaged. I can think of many times when I've walked into this auditorium, sat down and began listening to the message. In a few minutes, my mind is wondering about things that have nothing to do with what's being said. That's one reason why I, once again, have started taking notes. And you'll see me with my phone taking pictures of the screens and trying to stay engaged and, and listening. I try to engage my mind. I sometimes ask for clarification after the service on something. Most of the time, I'm either being encouraged or convicted by the teaching. We are so fortunate, as I said before, to have a teaching pastor and others who rightly divide the word of truth and bring application of those truths into our everyday lives in such a way that we can grasp them and obey God. But then he also tells us, once, once we've done this evaluation, hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Once you've evaluated the teaching and find it to be sound biblical truth, don't ignore it. Hold fast to it. 
Incorporate it into your life. Absorb it. Hang it. Hang on tightly to that which is genuine. And if it's counterfeit or evil, as it's called here, abstain from it, avoid it, warn others. Be cautious. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites, and by smooth talk and flattery they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you, but I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent to what is evil. These are important reminders for all of us as believers that our power comes from the indwelling Holy Spirit. Do not quench his influence by being unresponsive to him. God calls us to a disposition of rejoiceful, prayerful gratitude, which can only be done in the power of the Spirit. And God's Spirit guides us into truth so that we can avoid false doctrine and hold tightly to the truth and let it change us. The believer's power, the believer's disposition, the believer's discernment. May God help us to live these truths out. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for these particular verses that encourage us to allow your spirit to work in our hearts in such a way that the joy of the Lord is seen in our lives, that our hearts of gratitude are on display for the glory of God, even in the midst of difficult circumstances, that the Spirit of God makes it possible for us to communicate with you at any time, at all times. Help us to remain prayerful in close communication with you. Give us wisdom as we listen to your word taught. Help us to evaluate it by the truth revealed to us. Help us, Holy Spirit, to know what is right and wrong so that we can hold fast to the good and avoid that which is evil and destructive for our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Holy Spirit.